0: Tonight I want to speak to you very simply about the oldest thing in the world. I'm not talking about a person. I'm not talking about anything that any person might possess. I'm talking about the oldest thing in the earth, which is sin. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, And in verse 23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Now, whenever we think about sin, we think about something that did not originate by Adam's disobedience. Oh yes, it entered the earth and it entered all mankind by Adam's disobedience. But sin already was in existence. Of necessity, it must have been in existence before it could ever enter into the world. And as we know from the Scriptures, sin did pre-exist in the heart of Lucifer, Satan, long before man's creation. The Bible in the book of Jude talks about the angels that sinned. It speaks of the angels that sinned, uh, who were not spared by God, even in one of the epistles of Peter. Sin existed before there was ever a man on the earth. Therefore, we are rightly able to say, it is the oldest thing in the world. Now, sin has effects on everything. Everything that we experience this side of eternity is affected by sin. You lift your newspaper or you watch the news or you listen to news bulletins and you see there and you hear there a record of the stark reality of the dark manifestations of sin, the results of sin, the wages of sin, And therefore, only someone who's really foolish would ever deny the existence of sin. Only someone who is a fool could never talk about the awful fact of sin or try to say that it doesn't exist. Now, we do know that people have ways of describing bad behavior that fall short of calling it sin. There are things that anymore are referred to by people as mistakes— Oh, so and so made a mistake. He walked out on his wife and had an affair with another woman. That was a a mistake. No, it wasn't a mistake. That was deliberate. A mistake is whenever you, as a child, are told to add two and two and you get five. That's a mistake. But it's not a mistake when you do something deliberately that is flaunting the law of God. People often talk about crimes that are committed. Philosophers talk about ignorance. Psychologists talk about abnormalities. Society in general will talk about indiscretions and mistakes. But the Word of God says that sin is the proper description of all of these behaviors. Sin. Now what is sin? Well, quite simply... There are two scriptures that really outline for us and set forth for us what sin actually is by definition. The first one is in Romans 3 and verse 23, because you'll see the first part says, for all have sinned. That doesn't leave out anyone. But then it says, and come short of the glory of God. Now, the tense of this, the the actual sense of the original language is, and are." constantly coming short of the glory of God. That's what it means. In other words, sin is a failure to hit the mark. It's a failure to reach a standard. It is, if you like, falling short of God's absolute standard of rectitude. So, all have sinned and are constantly coming short of the glory of God. That's what people are doing all the time. They're falling short of God's standard. But that's one side of it. That's, if you like, the negative side of it. If you want to call it a positive act of sin, that which is not coming short, but that which is actually going beyond the mark, stepping over the mark, the breaking of the boundaries, the breaking down of the hedge and going into illegal territory. Then you come to First John And to the chapter number 3 and verse 4 where it says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth or breaketh also the law, for sin is the transgression or the breaking, the breach of the law. So here we have sin as a positive transgression. It's not just failure to meet the mark like someone who goes to jump in the high jump and they don't make it over the pole. That's falling short. That's one aspect of sin. Our failure to do what God tells us to do. But here we have positive transgression, actual transgression. That's what sin is. It is a stepping beyond the mark. It's going beyond the boundary that God has set. Sin is the transgression of the law. The law says, thou shalt, and the sinner does it. The law says, thou shalt not, and the sinner does it. Or when he says, thou shalt, he fails to do it. The law says, thou shalt, the sinner fails to do what God says. The law says, "Thou shalt not, and He does what the law says is not to do. Disobedience. This is sin, not only the missing of the mark, but the passing over or the transgression of the line, going over the border, going where God has said we cannot go. Sin is a non-observance of God's law. Sin is discord. Sin is, and it could be described in many other ways, as an evil thing. It is the oldest thing in the world. And it's still with us today. And its effects are seen on every hand in individual lives and in society as a whole. You talk about all the ills of society today. I don't care what it is, you can trace it up to this problem. Sin is at the heart of it. You take marriage breakdown. Sin is at the heart of marriage breakdown. When people go against what God says in his word, that is sin. Now, there are a number of things that we could say about sin, this oldest thing. In the world. And I simply want to deal with those things tonight, even as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. Let's think first of all about what sin has done. This is a great truth that the Bible outlines that is, what sin has done. What has sin done? What has sin wrought to mankind and within mankind? Well, first of all, sin has divided man from God. Sin has separated man from his maker. We learn this from a number of scriptures, but for example, I could quote Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So you're not on praying ground if you're not saved. There is a barrier that comes between you and God. There is a separation between you and your maker. You need to be reconciled to God. You are an enemy of God. You are away from God. You are separated from Him. This is what sin has done. It has created, created a great division, a division between God and the sinner. There's something else that sin has done. It has depraved the entire race. Now, I know that there are places in the Bible where the word all means all without distinction. That means all types. There are other places where the Bible uses the word all, and it means all without exception. And we always have to be very careful in looking at the context to know which one is being talked about. For example, when the Bible says that we are to pray for all men... On the face of it, that is impossible. Because if you talk about all men, and you mean literally all men without exception, from the beginning of creation to the end of time, then you're going to say that you're going to pray for people who are dead. You're going to pray for those who are already in hell. So when it says we're to pray for all men, it doesn't mean literally all men. It means all types of men. And of course the verse there in 1 Timothy explains this. Supplications, intercessions and so on are to be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. So there you get the understanding of what all men means, all types of men. They're all men without distinction, high and low, rich and poor, the man on the throne, the man in the street. But there are other places where the word all literally means all without exception. And here's one of those instances where the Bible is talking about all who are without exception. Everybody is included. No one is excluded. And that is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. And when it says all have sinned, it means all. Every single person has sinned. Romans three verse ten gives us that statement. There is none righteous, no, not one. Sin has depraved the entire human race. Therefore, it is right and proper to talk about a fallen race. Nobody gets off with the charge. You've sinned. You are a sinner. You are depraved. Sin has divided man from God, sin has depraved the entire race. Furthermore, sin has degraded the whole man. Whenever you read in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it is a description of Israel. It's a description of the nation. But let me tell you, it's also a description of the natural man. Here's what it says. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even unto the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's a description of man as God sees him. This is what sin has done to him. It's made him into a grotesque creature. And none of us are accepted. None of us are excluded. Something else that sin has done, it's divided man from God, it's depraved the entire race, it has degraded the whole man, it has deprived men of peace. You know, the Bible tells us that there is no peace to the wicked. Isaiah 57 verse 21 tells us that, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. People are looking for contentment, they're looking for peace of mind and of heart, but they're not going to find it. Outside of God's salvation, there is no peace to the wicked. They're like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. That's what the Bible says. And people talk about peace. And they talk about being at peace, but they're not really at peace. Because they're not at peace with God. They don't have peace with God, and they don't have the peace of God. This is what sin has done. It has deprived men of peace. And the consequence of all this, sin has damned souls in an eternal hell. This is what sin has done, and it's what sin is doing. The wages of sin is death. When Adam was in the garden... The Lord warned him. He said, Adam, all these other trees in the garden, you can eat freely of them. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou mayest not eat, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, does that mean that when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they just killed over and died there and then? No, they didn't. But the Hebrew, the thought in the Hebrew word that's used there for death is in dying thou shalt die. In other words, Adam began to die that day. The seeds of death were in his body until when he was 600 and some years of age, he died. Or was it 930? He got to be an old man, but he died. But what sin has done, it has not only produced physical death, every funeral is a reminder of the fall of man. I remarked upon this when my dear wife went to be with the Lord. I said to someone that I was talking to, looking at her corpse, this is the result of sin. This is what sin has done, it has brought death into the world. Every funeral testifies to that. Every grave speaks forth that loud voice. The wages of sin is death. But death is not just physical death. It's not just about bodies dying. Death is also spiritual death so that men are dead in trespasses and sins. They're not just comatose. They're not just in a coma. They're dead in trespasses and sins. You go up to a corpse, stick a pin in the corpse, there's no response puts nice-smelling food under their nostrils, there's no response because they're dead. And that's how it is with men and women in the gospel, which is why it takes an act of sovereign grace to make people interested in the gospel because they're dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritual death. But there's a third aspect, and that's eternal death. The wages of sin is death. It's talking about hell. It's talking about eternal judgment. That's the second death, as Revelation describes it. The psalmist said, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. This is what sin has done. It has damned souls in an eternal hell. But as well as thinking about what sin has done, the oldest thing in the world... We can consider what God has done with sin. What has God done with sin? Well, we know that he has pronounced against it. We know that he has prohibited sin. I use those terms deliberately in the law. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. That is found in all of the commandments of God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me thou shalt not, and so on. Right through the Ten Commandments, God has pronounced against sin. He has prohibited sin. God is against sin. The devil wants to make sin look harmless. He wants to dress it up as something that's beneficial, something that is good. Because there's pleasure attached to it, therefore it must be beneficial, it must be a good thing to get involved in sin. But God has condemned sin. God has prohibited sin. But thank the Lord he's done something else with sin. He has placed sin on Christ. That's what happened at the cross. This is what happened at Calvary. Our sins were laid upon Jesus. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary where he suffered and died alone. God laid our sins. He placed our sins upon Christ. Read that lovely passage in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I love how that is in the margin. It is the iniquity of us all has been made to meet on him. In other words, there's a great aggregate of human sin that has been laid upon Christ. He bore that burden to Calvary. Who himself bare our sins in his own body, on the tree. Paul in 2 Corinthians five twenty one put it like this, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Every sin that had to go neath the cleansing flow hallelujah rolled away rolled away, rolled away and the burden of my heart rolled away Our sins were laid on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bore them all and He frees us from the accursed load. What has God done with sin? He has pronounced against it, He's prohibited it, He has placed our sin on Christ. And in connection with that, He has punished Christ for our sin. And this is a great mystery. This is an amazing truth also spoken of in Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Christ was punished for our sins. He was treated as if he were the sinner, though he had no sin of his own. God judged our sins in Christ as if they were upon us. He became so identified with us that he became identified with our sin. And there God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's what God has done with sin. It's been taken away. And that brings me to the third great point about this oldest thing in the world. We've talked about what sin has done. We've talked about what God has done with sin. But we need to think as well about what Christ has done with sin. Some people like to talk about the passive and the active obedience of Christ. And what they mean by that is when he was on the cross, he was passive, receiving all the judgment But in his life, in his holy life, he was active in obedience to the law of God. But actually, as one preacher said, he was never more active than when he was viewed as passive upon the cross. Because he actually was doing something when he was dying on the cross. What was he doing? Well, what Christ has done with sin is that he has carried it away. He's carried it away. You think back to that lovely illustration of the work of Christ that's set forth in a twofold fashion on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You'll remember, I'm sure, in Leviticus 16 that there are two goats, two animals. There's one that is slain, it's killed, its blood is shed. There's another that's called a scapegoat, the Azazel. And these two are not separate offerings. We must Emphasize this. These two are two aspects of one sin offering. They set forth the work of Christ for us under two separate ways or or two separate pictures. The one picture is of Christ suffering on the cross, being punished for our sins. That's the lamb or the, the kid that was killed. The blood was shed. But the other one is not killed. It's kept alive, it's tethered, it's taken on a leash, as it were, by the hand of a man who's described as a fit man, out into a lonely desert, right out into a land not inhabited is what the Bible calls it, away far from the camp of Israel, away far from civilization, right out in the sticks. And that man would take that animal tethered, that scapegoat that had the sins of the people figuratively transferred to its head. You see, when that animal was set aside to be the scapegoat, the priest would lay his hand upon the head of that animal, and he would pronounce over that animal, that there was to be a transfer of the sins of the congregation and the transgressions and the iniquities of the congregation to that animal's head. And so he would lay his hands upon his head and the fit man would take that animal who's carrying now figuratively the sins of the people away into a desert land, not inhabited. And what does he do? He leaves the animal there. He takes the tether off and he goes back to the camp of Israel. And that animal is left there in that lonely wilderness. It's a scapegoat bearing the sins of the children of Israel. That is a picture of what Jesus did in his sufferings on the cross. Because you see, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. He's removed our sins out of God's sight and out of our sight. This is what Christ has done with sin. He has carried it away in his sacrifice. That's why John could say, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away, which beareth away the sin of the world. Or as Peter puts it, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Do you believe it? That your sins which were many are all washed away, they're all taken away since the Lord Jesus became your savior. What Christ has done with sin, the oldest thing in the world, he's carried that sin away. But he's also covered that sin. The word kafar in the Greek or sorry in the Hebrew language, kafar is translated Atonement. The word is used, for example, in Psalm 32, where it speaks of the blessing of that man whose sins are covered. It means whose sins are atoned for. Psalm 32 and verse number 1 Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Kafar. His sin is covered over. It's taken away by Christ. Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We can't see our sins anymore. God can't see our sins anymore. They've been covered by the atonement of Christ. You know, this word kafar is the word, I've, I've mentioned this before, that's used of the pitch that was used to tar the inside and the outside of Noah's ark. It was like a waterproofing black pitch that was painted all on the outside of the ark and on the inside of the ark. You know what that tells me? When, when Noah and his family were inside the ark and they looked up at the ceiling, all they could see was the pitch. Kafar, the covering. When God would look down on that great vessel, it was covered in pitch on the outside. It was a picture of the covering that Christ has made for our sins. The atonement has been made. So therefore it satisfies man, Noah and his family. It satisfies the sinner. But it also satisfies God. And that's the way it is with the work of Christ. It satisfied God. He offered himself without spot unto God. And what God is satisfied with, we are satisfied with as believers. We rejoice in the atonement. That's what we think about when we have communion. We're rejoicing in the atonement that has been made for our sins. Our sins are gone. They're taken away. God doesn't know anything about our sins. How do you know that? Because he said in his word, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. They're blotted out of his mind. What a thought that is. My sins are not blotted out of my mind. They're not blotted out of the mind of the old devil either. He remembers them. He loves to dredge them up. He loves to remind me of those sins. But those sins are forgiven. Those sins are cleansed. Those sins don't exist as far as God is concerned. The Lord would say to us when we try to talk about those sins that are already forgiven, what sins are you talking about? They're covered. That's what Christ has done with sin. He carried away our sins. He's covered our sins. Something else Christ has done, he's cleansed away our sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us. The word signifies, goes on, cleansing us from all sin. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he talked about a certain type of people, several types of people who had been saved in Corinth. And they are what we might call a motley crew. He talked about those who would not be in heaven. He said, Adulterers and fornicators and abusers of themselves with mankind and a whole litany of different types of sins. Be not deceived, he said, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. None of them are going to be in heaven. But then he says this, and such were, past tense, some of you. But look at the first statement, but ye are washed. You're washed. You've been cleansed. And you're sanctified and you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you or evil of victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There's cleansing power in the blood of Jesus. This is what Christ has done with sin. He has cleansed it away. He's washed it away by his blood. So we've talked about what sin has done. It's divided man from God. It has depraved the entire race. It has degraded The whole man has deprived man of peace. It has damned souls in hell. What God has done with sin. He's prohibited it. He's pronounced against it. He's placed sin on Christ. He's punished Christ for sin. What Christ has done with our sin. What has he done? He's carried away our sin. By his sacrifice. He has covered our sin. There's the atonement. He has cleansed away our sin. By his blood. One other thing about the oldest thing in, in the world. And it's this speaking to those that know not the Lord, what you must do with sin. What you must do with sin. In order to be saved, in order for the work of Christ to become effectual in your case, you have to confess your sins. Confessing sin means to uncover it in the sight of God, not make excuses for it, but to uncover it, to spread it out before the Lord and freely own up to it. Confess your sin. And the promise is if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the pathway to salvation, confession. Confession to God, that is, confession only to God. What must you do with sin? You must confess it. You must uncover it by confession. But then you must call upon the Lord. What's the promise? Romans 10 verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It means to call from the heart, yes. It is a call that is precipitated by the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, yes. But nonetheless, it's a simple thing to call upon the Lord for salvation. Sometimes people get hung up on this because they think it's too simple. Like, what do you mean? you just call upon the Lord to save you and that's it? Yes, that's it. That's it. It is simple. And it's so simple that people trip over it all the time because they think there's something that they must do there's something that they must offer to the Lord but there's nothing we can offer to the Lord and it's an insult to try to offer anything to the Lord the Lord himself provides salvation 100% and he tells us whosoever, that means anybody at all shall call upon the name of the Lord and that's a call from the heart for salvation, shall be saved Simple, isn't it? Have you called upon the name of the Lord and asked him to save you? When I was a little boy, I did that. And for many years, I used to doubt so much whether I was really saved or not. Because I would hear people like my father give testimony to all the terrible things they used to do in his life. And I said, well, I didn't do those things. They talk about this amazing change that had taken place in his life. And I thought, well, I don't remember any amazing change in my life. And so I would extrapolate from that, I must not be saved. And so I'd ask the Lord again to save me. I must have done that hundreds of times. Then I began to realize... It's not so much the time when it happened that I was trying to remember. Was it this occasion? Was it here? Was it there? Was it that time? Was it this other time? It is what am I depending on right now to get me to heaven. What is it that I'm leaning upon? What is it that I'm looking to to save my soul? And if I can say it is Christ, it is Christ alone, it is the work of Christ alone, I am saved. That's my dependence. There is my assurance. My assurance is not going back to that date whenever it was and thinking about what I prayed on that occasion. That's not where you get the assurance. The assurance is looking away to Jesus. Looking away to his work. But we must confess our sins to him. What must we do with sin? We must call upon the Lord to save us. I know that sometimes it is criticized, it is often talked about as something that is not scriptural, the sinner's prayer. But let me just say this, there is no salvation guaranteed in a formula, i.e. a particular form of words. So to that extent, I agree with those who say the sinner's prayer is not scriptural in the sense that as long as you say the words, God be merciful to me, a sinner, then that'll save you. No, I don't believe that. However, think of the one who said those words. He was the publican who went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee was full of self-righteousness. His whole prayer wasn't really a prayer. It was a speech about himself. Lord, I've done this, and I do this, and I do the. I give tithes of all that I possess, and I fast twice a week. It was all about Him. The publican, however, there in the temple when the offering was about to be made, he said, "God be merciful." And the word there is connected with the mercy seat. It is, "God be propitious." That's literally what it means. God be propitious to me, a sinner you could put it this way, Lord, look upon me as when thou lookest upon the blood. That's what he was praying. That was his dependence. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, Lord, look upon me as you look upon the blood. This is my dependence for salvation. I'm looking to the blood for my salvation. And that kind of sinner's prayer will get you saved. Because that is the essence of the gospel right there. Christ died for our sins and we're depending upon his atoning work to get us to heaven. Call upon the Lord. That's what you must do with sin. And of course there's a third thing there, you must claim the promise. Claim the promise. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Do you believe it? God says it. Come to me, confess your sins to me, and I will remember your sins and your iniquities no more. I will not remember them anymore. Is he a liar? No, he's not a liar. That's a blasphemy even to think such a thing. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. God is speaking the truth when he says their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. When John Bunyan wrote his Pilgrim's Progress, he had the pilgrim coming to that place somewhat ascending. And the pilgrim saw there on that tree, one who was dying in his guilty room instead. And he said as he looked upon that one, the form of that one who was on the tree, that burden that was on his back fell off. And it fell right down the hill behind him until it was out of sight and he saw it no more again. That's salvation. That's what God does. He takes our sins away. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Let us claim the promise. I do love that hymn just as I am without one plea. I know that people often again criticize that hymn because of the way it has been used uh, virtually as a device as an emotional tug at people's hearts to try to get them to make a decision but listen, it doesn't destroy the effectiveness of that hymn it doesn't change its message and it doesn't mean that it's not true what a great hymn that is Just as I am, without one plea But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Beautiful words. And that's how we must come to the Lord, just as we are. Something else that I want to finish with here. What are we to do with sin? We're to confess it. We're to call upon the Lord. We're to claim the promise. And after we're saved, let me stress this. After we're saved, we are to continue to forsake sin. We're to continue to forsake sin. I am not saved by continuing to forsake sin. Salvation is of the Lord. Christ saves the soul. But those who are truly saved will show that they're truly saved. They will evidence that they're truly saved by continuing to forsake sin. See, this is the great, if you like, litmus test for those that are truly saved. What's your attitude to sin? What's your attitude to sin now? Do you want to sin? Does your sin bother you? Do you feel when you've sinned against the Lord that there's like a dagger going through your soul? You've offended the Lord and you've got to get it cleansed and you've got to get it taken away. Those are marks of grace. Because the true believer wants to be rid of his sins. He doesn't want to sin. He knows that he sins still, but he doesn't want to sin. He wants to forsake sin. He wants to keep short accounts with God. He wants to be clean. And that's why, like the psalmist in Psalm 51, he prays such prayers as, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Or purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than the snow. These are not the words of an unbeliever. These, these are the words of a believer. Because he wants to be rid of his sins. He wants victory over the flesh. He wants to please the Lord. He wants to serve the Lord. He wants to be a testimony for Christ. These are all marks of grace. May the Lord help us to have a right and a scriptural view of sin. And may we never rest, whoever's hearing this message or will hear it in the future, never rest until you know that your sins have been taken away by Christ. The oldest thing in the world. It's the biggest problem in the world. And it needs to be removed. If you're ever to be in heaven. May the Lord challenge our hearts through his word even today. Amen.